The Sports Career Podcast, episode 295. How can a SWOT analysis support your sports career development? sports achiever and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the sports career podcast i'm your host ed bowers as always my goal each week is to provide you an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry especially if you have an interest with regards to high performance and want to learn more about what it takes to be an elite athlete i hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs now before i talk about this week's podcast special guest If you're struggling with regards to getting your foot in the door in the sports industry, I highly recommend you enrolling to my free sports career mini course, which in seven days you'll understand how to discover and start a career in the sports industry with confidence. Head to education2sport forward slash MC and enroll today. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Amy Williams, MBE. Amy is a former elite athlete where she won a gold medal at the Vancouver Winter Olympics in the skeleton. At the time, she was the first British individual gold medalist at the Winter Olympics for 30 years and the only gold medal during those Olympic Games too. As a result, she was awarded an MBE from Her Majesty the Queen. Currently, she's a fitness professional, broadcaster and an author of her new latest book called Talent to Triumph. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to have Amy as a podcast special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Amy will share her sports career journey and explain to you how a SWOT analysis can really support your sports career development. Amy, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Ah, Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, for me... As an ex-skeleton athlete now, um, yeah, everyone first thing is kind of skeleton's quite a weird thing to get into, which yes, I guess it kind of is. Yeah, so I mean, I started the sport of skeleton back in 2002, just after the Salt Lake City Winter Olympic Games and background, very sporty background growing up doing sort of a little bit of everything as a kid. Um, And then I was doing athletics, so I was kind of training two, three, four times a week, you know, increasing it from the ages of about 16, 17, 18. And then, yeah, just really living in the right place, right right time. Was up at the University of Bath doing a sprint session and was in the gym and just got chatting to some people who happened to be doing bobsay skeleton and were about to go off to this special new start track that had been built for those Salt Lake City games. And I went along and had a go and you know, suddenly you're realizing, and what I tell people now is just that transferable skill from one skill set, power, speed, explosiveness, from that background of running and sprinting can easily then be switched over to some sport that you'd never heard of, you never really knew about. And when you have that kind of open mind, suddenly you're thrown into a whole new world, didn't even know existed. Just with regards to your athletics side of things, what main sprinting or running did you compete in out of interest? Was it the 100 or 200? I'm just curious. I, I 
Well, you know what? I kind of did a little bit of everything. I was kind of like that school kid when you're in your, you know, your your secondary school and that sort of sixth form. Uh, I just did a little bit of everything. So uh, growing up for sure, you know, it was a moment I did like some hurdle sprint hurdles. It's the moment that you got chucked into doing 200. Back then you kind of did 300 meters quite a lot at a certain age. Right? And I thought 300 was amazing. You know, you didn't die in the last 80 like a 400 meter race but you were you could keep going through if you weren't quite quick enough for the 100 um and then yeah and then I did up it to kind of 400 I've been known to do 800s in my time you know what everything you know cross country you know you got thrown into that was always on my mum's birthday every single year but yeah I mean for me I kind of started really going for the sort of 400 meters and was good but I think it was around that sort of age, 17, 18, and I just knew I wasn't quite good enough. I was good in my region, good in the Southwest, you know, all those kind of school trials, hitting it, winning races. And then um, I had a lot of problems with my shins, actually, like compartment syndrome, a lot of shin splints and, and stuff. And I just couldn't quite do all that long distance stuff needed for that, you know, the kind of sprint endurance of the 400 so my eyes were wandering of, mm, am I good enough? Am I, you know, not quite? What other sport could I be good at? So, yeah, I was in that sort of looking around stage. A bit limboy by the sound of things. And I'm just curious of one thing, like with that decision of, because I think there's so many athletes or young athletes out there who don't transition, which you mentioned, you know, give it a new sport a go. But how did you get that processes in place going, look, Let's just give it a go attitude, then put in pressure that I'm going to be an elite skeleton athlete because it's easy reflecting looking back. Yeah, I think for me, it was just a natural flow. I never thought too much. I never pushed anything. I didn't suddenly think, okay, here's a sport of skeleton. I'm going to be an Olympic champion. Like that never entered my mind. Not at all. I was given this opportunity. I went along to the start track, sort of invited myself along. I had a go. Oh, I'm pretty quick okay oh you guys are going off for the world push championships in a few months hmm I wonder if I could do that too ring up okay do you mind if I compete can I compete as a guest yep you can compete for a guest for Great Britain get yourself out there you know it is you know this is the date this is the time there's a slot for you but we're not paying for you to go out go out so it was more things like that that yeah all right I'll have a go I'll go out I get to compete for Great Britain doing a world push chance of a sport that I still never yet gone down on the ice but hey like of course I'm going to go and do it and so it was more decisions like that and then I, I did really well there I, I came came second overall there and they said well look you know there's an army ice camp the military were really the only way of doing it back in 2002 it was there was no talent IDs or UK sports schemes or these girls for goals schemes that are, exist now there was nothing it was the military British military so I went and joined um, a military ice camp army there were some marines there was navy people there and it was a two-week camp pay your way see what you think of it what did you learn what did you learn from that experience that the military environment I'm just curious now I've just literally read, read a marine book recently and yeah how they push the limits physically and mentally did you experience some of that during that camp yeah I, I'll be honest I don't really I, it's a bit of a fuzzy memory in that sense mm -hmm. I'm so good friends with the first lady that pushed me off the sled uh you know everyone was learning it was quite intimidating knowing that there was just a few of us civilians and 
a lot of it was bobsleigh. So the, the, the girls, the guys were, were big, they were tall, they were very physical. So I do remember that and almost what kept me going because I didn't, I didn't enjoy it to begin with. You know, it's, it's a shock to your senses. It's, it's a hard thing to say you instantly enjoy. Uh, but I do remember thinking, I can't quit. I can't give up. You know, that is not the mentality of someone in the army. You keep going and you keep pushing and you get back to the top and you get back on that sled and you try not to hit as many walls on the way down. And so that definitely was sort of, yep, yeah, I don't want to look like a wimp. I'm going to go back down and I'm going to crack on. And I guess that's probably, yeah, in my personality as well, but probably the combination of that. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of first two weeks, pretty baptism of fire off your trot. Um, yeah, starting off halfway down and then eventually being at the top of the track and, and sprinting off the track. And just with the girls, I want to just a little time out for the listeners, because it's a great point you said where you literally got on the phone and created the opportunity. How important is it to have that type of attitude, then assuming the opportunity will come to you and waiting for it, that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, particularly now, you've just got to be proactive. If something sparks your interest, yeah, make it happen. If you're in a sport and you feel like you need a bit of help, then reach out. Uh, I think these days people are so accessible, you know, this world of social media and Googling and finding people's emails or whatever it might be, whether you're interested in a job or becoming a school teacher or whether it is a sport, you can research anything and um, don't be scared to ask for help. You want advice, you're interested in something, then write that email or pick up the phone or speak to somebody and say, do you think you know someone who could help me? Yeah. And then, you know, if you never got into something, you've only got yourself to blame if you didn't push yourself. And yeah, sometimes doors open for you, but you've got to make those doors open as well. And that's definitely something I've learned now and you know, many years later, is to, to open your own doors. Absolutely. And I just want to move forward now, because Andrew mentioned he was on, Andrew Pitt was on the podcast as well, and he shared a great story where you're in Bath, and that's when you sort of started, and you didn't have the facilities compared to, let's say, the German athletes who it's embedded in their culture. So you looked at the approach of your career going, well, if these German athletes have the facilities, what can I do where I can be the best. And the bit he mentioned was the nutrition and the recovery. So I just love that side of the beginning of your journey of when you're in Bath, figuring out the, your career journey as an Olympic athlete, but with regards to the controllables, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess for, for any winter athlete in, in the UK, everything is, is against you a little bit, uh, especially in the sport of the ice sport, skeleton bobs luge. We don't have a nice track in the UK. We have the start track in Bath. So if you want to do the sport, pretty much you need to be based in Bath. Um, and that's where, you know, you're going to have the best facilities to be able to train in those summer months. And then in the winter months, we pack our bags and we're all around the world trying to get as much amount of ice time on all the other tracks. And like you said, like Germany have got three, four tracks. Uh, America have got three tracks, two tracks. And Canada have now got, you know, their extra ones. So all around the European countries and North America, they've all got their own ice tracks to be able to practice on, to slide on. Lots of them have ice push tracks. So we could, if we had lots of money coming into ours, we could put a big roof and structure and make it ice and actually be able to sprint on ice in the summer using our real sleds. That would be a huge, um, well, another next step. 
So, yeah, you're up against these um, nations that have got better facilities, are available to be able to test equipment, to slide more than us. But, yeah, that's up against you. But you have to think outside the box and think, well, how else can we as a nation become better? We can train our bodies better. We can train our minds better. We can try and get best nutrition. I mean, back in my day, we didn't have money for nutritionists or anything, but you researched yourself. Uh, Nowadays, yeah, there's full-time physios, there's full-time sled technicians, there's full-time nutritionists. There's a lot of more help and more money going into it. So for me, it was, okay, these are the things I think I need to do and get better at. I'll do it myself or I will give, you know, really put in 100% effort to all these other areas uh, and, yeah, I always tell people, put your life into that kind of pie chart. If you're an athlete or you want to get good at something and, and section your life off into all these different chapters and then improve every one of those different chapters. Um, what is important for you and your sport? Or even if you're not sporty, like you want to be a really good, I don't know, get into some science um, you know, degree at a university. Well, what is it that you need to improve on? Let's write down all these areas. Do I need to have better time management? Do I need to go to bed earlier? Do I need to study more? Do I need to, you know, go to different courses? You know, what are all these areas that I can manage to improve on to be able to to get that end goal that I want to achieve? That's one of the exercises in your book. It is. (laughs) But that pie chart is one of my favorite ones as well, but not just the time management, but wow. Okay. I want to decode this a touch because you're reminding me of an athlete who was actually my um, depth head master called Shane O'Brien, who was in the Sochi Olympics for New Zealand. He won a gold medal. And these were the days where it was like he did three jobs plus be an elite athlete. And I'm sitting here going, wow, it was like that DIY approach. Probably like you say now, there's all the system. So reflecting on having that DIY mentality, how has that made you more resilient now just as a human being i know you've got a business i assume you've had ups and downs of being a business owner so i'm just curious of it's great that there's programs in place but on the other hand you can learn so many lessons if you have the courage to do it yourself i mean yeah all the lessons i wish now and the reason i i wrote my book was just kind of actually it took me 10 plus 12 years to learn these lessons and I want to put them on a piece of paper and in a book for the next generation to be able to learn quicker than what I took to learn and here you are read this and these are what I learned um, from an athlete from day one to an Olympic athlete and the lessons and fast track you so yeah that is a big reason why I, I, I wrote my book specifically for sort of the teenage athlete but I think like you say that DIY approach and for business yeah I've got my own personal training business and just going into like being a mom motherhood for any families you know you're juggling everything um and and yeah to be gutsy and brave and go out there on your own and you learn things it doesn't always go right it sometimes goes wrong and you don't always achieve things you fail at things and that's like an athlete you don't always make the team I didn't make the Turin Olympic team in 2006. Okay, well, why didn't I? And you look back on it and you think, okay, maybe I wasn't focused on the right things. And and yeah, in hindsight, I think I was focused too much on the other girls and what they were doing and consumed with other people rather than my performance. And that was a big, big lesson for me. And I talk about that in my in my book quite a lot. Um, and okay, that's a lesson and, and a lesson now, I don't know, world of social media. Am I focusing too much on other people's Instagram pages? Like, look at all these fitness people. And then I'm like, 
It's okay, Amy. They are single. They are young. They don't have family. They don't have kids. They can do all these things and spend their whole life doing beautiful workout videos. You are trying to juggle tons of things in once. You can't do that to that same level. You can only do what you can do and be happy with what you can put out there. Um, and I think that's just the world, the life. You're you're kind of always sort of looking at others or reaching out. You've got, yeah, the failures, the not so, you know, the, the good and the bad and doing it yourself. Um, you still need to ask for the support. Like I said, asking and asking help, asking advice, reaching out to other people, going to people that give you the good energy back. Um and I think all of that is important. It's a learning experience. Um, write things down, learn from it, um, learn from your mistakes and, and don't see them necessarily as mistakes and failures. See them as like a lesson and I'm going to learn from that. And how do I switch that into this positive space that I can take on and improve in other areas? I was going to say there's this one quote I wanted to highlight in this conversation, but it relates to 2006. You said this in the book that setbacks can be a hindsight of fantastic events to teach you certain lessons moving forward so with regards to that quote it relates to what you've just said there but I would like to touch on in 2006 because in the book I could feel the emotion of how frustrated sad you were that you weren't picked and I, I'm just intrigued like and you'd have mentioned one factor that you did a lot of comparison of the other competitors but looking back could you remember that one first step that helped you focus on 2010 could you remember was it that SWOT uh, analysis you'd done to you know, just focus on 2010 and not focus on 2006, because you also had a broadcasting opportunity and you just felt really, you felt the friction of doing it because you wanted to compete in it, if that makes sense. So I'm just intrigued of what was that first step after that big disappointment? Yeah, um, yeah, like you said, and to fill sort of everyone else in, yeah, I missed out on the Trin Winter Olympics. Um, we just had one place for a girl. I think our guys had two space, two spaces, and it's all on your rankings as a nation. We we weren't good enough as a nation in the sport, uh, and obviously we went on to be better and better, and we got two spaces in Vancouver and three for the guys. So yeah, I didn't get that space. Uh, I was reserve, and I. Um, well, actually, as a reserve, I didn't even get to go out to the Olympics. You kind of sat at home. But uh, yeah, BBC Five Live Radio asked if I'd go out and do all the radio commentating. And it was a real, yeah, bittersweet. OK, I'm going out to the Olympics, uh, but I'm not competing. But OK, I've been given this opportunity and I'm going to take it and I'm going to grab it. And I'm going to learn from this environment. I've never been to an Olympic Games before. I want to soak it up. So I had to turn it into this real, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to learn. I'm going to feel the energy of an Olympic Games. I'm going to be right near the track, albeit in a little commentating booth overlooking the finish line. I was with Vassos Alexander at the time. Um, and that was a learning experience anyway, doing all the radio commentating and, and feeling the energy of the Olympics and being right there, close enough heartbreakingly enough close still with that kind of team GB uh, reserve space over your head and not competing but for me it was yeah a learning I, I took the the chance I took the step to go out there and I'm so glad I did because yeah you know I came away from those Olympics I traveled around Australia you know took a break stayed with all my Aussie skeleton and bobsleigh friends had a, a, a really good breakaway and then being at those Olympics put that fire in my belly. That's what I was like. I am never watching Olympic Games again without being competing. 
You know, I am going to every day of my life now for four years, blinkers, absolute blinkers on every decision of every day is, will this help me go to the Olympic Games? Yes or no. It still wasn't, I'm going to win a medal. Although clearly, if you're going to go to Olympic Games, you're there to do the very best and you want to win a medal. But it was at that point, I'm going to go to Vancouver Olympics. I have four years. And so it was a huge, big turning point. Um, it really did light that fire and passion. And that really drove me every single day uh, and the decisions. And and yeah, like you said, British Skeleton, at the end of every winter season, we all gather around and we do big review processes. We still do it now. And it was a huge thing that we did as a sport, going through... Um, your own personal performance, the performance of the team, the performance of every individual, uh, doing a, a SWOT analysis, working out your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, your threats, um, which, yeah, I, I do put that into my book in kind of goal setting. And it's it's good to do in any walk of life, whether you're an athlete or not, you know, whether you're a business person, do it. You know, you can really work out what's and, and do it from that pie chart that I told you about earlier. Do every single chapter do a SWOT analysis. And before you know it, you've set yourself out some goals. They don't have to be hard, just really simple. Go to bed half an hour earlier or prep my bag the night before and be less stressed in the morning, you know, simple things. Uh, and yeah, and I mean, uh, that for us gave us a plan, a plan for the upcoming summer of focusing on, I want to be able to push my sled a tenth quicker. That means in the gym, I need to try and get stronger. I need to try and squat a bit heavier. I need to do some leg press heavier. I need to work on my stabilization, I need to work on my glute activations, whatever it might be, you know, you suddenly have a plan of every day, of every week, of every month. And then when you go out onto ice, okay, these are the tracks I'm going to go and race at and slide at. I, I need to improve on each one of these tracks. And are there specific corners on each one of these tracks that I need to get better at? And do I need to know my equipment a little bit better? And do I need to research old videos of people sliding? And you get the gist all of a sudden you've suddenly got a list of things that you can be working on in the summer months as well as when you're out there in the winter um and yeah I did that pretty obsessively <laughs> for for the next four years to be able to get from those Turin Olympics up until Vancouver and how important is it to have that sort of attention to detail of how you train because there's something interesting in the book that I find fascinating firstly is a person I admire with regards to his rugby career yet Sir Clive Woodward who designed a certain piece of equipment because if I'm correct, it was like back, like if you didn't have, like basically it was to help support your back during that type of exercise. And I'm just intrigued of as much as you're training, like if you know areas of certain equipment that can benefit you more, but not get injured, how are those little tiny details make an impact with that goal setting or process within those four year period? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, so Clive Woodward was our chef de mission um, at the Olympic Games in Vancouver. And, and yeah, well, no, I'd been, I'm, I had really, well, I still have dodgy discs, slip disc in my first crashes back in 2002, three. So I had to be really careful as my career went on and my back and my discs kind of got worse and worse. I couldn't lift and squat really heavy weights anymore. I couldn't deadlift heavy. I had to stop doing all my power lifts and cleans and shift my training around doing a lot of one legged single weight stuff. And I pretty much lived my life on a leg press machine. So the, the pressure and you can do a lot of power slightly differently in the weight. The weight isn't coming down through your head, through your back, through your discs. You know, you're sort of sat down and your legs at a different angle to be able to push away. 
So yeah, for me, that was a, an important piece of equipment that um, we had in the gym at the University of Bath and most gyms these days, everyone has a leg press machine. If I could afford it, I'd have one in my own gym, but they're big pieces of equipment and cost a lot of money. And yeah, and so yeah, so Clive Woodward, knowing the small attention to detail, and I'd done a lot of work on potentiation and, and peaking your own natural testosterone. And so for me, I knew I had to go in the gym a certain amount of hours before my race to do a certain amount of lifting of weight on a leg press machine, to be able to get my own tiny minuscule peak of natural testosterone, which I wanted to do a certain amount of hours before my race very long story. Um, but scientifically, we, you know, we did a lot of stuff in the, in the summer. And so, yeah, so Clive Woodward made sure flown out for me, <laughs> there was a certain leg press machine in the garage of our little team GB house, because the gym out there, when we'd done a recce, didn't have one in the gym. And if it did, you didn't want someone to be using it doing a session when I specifically had a time slot, a window of time slot that I needed to be on it. So yeah, I, he, um, I don't know what the cost of that was like. <laughs> Little details to that. And I think the attention to detail and, I mean, we learned quite a lot from British sailing after their success in Olympics and a lot of different Olympic sports. You know, we learn from each other and finding those little 1%. You always hear people rant on about marginal gains and 1%. And yeah, it's a big thing in, in my life, in my book, and really trying to show you those chapters and the 1%. And those little fine margins can make one hundredth of a second in your sport. One hundredth of a second can be first, second, third, fourth place. So yeah, for me going through your life with a fine tooth comb to find where can I just make that tiny improvement every day and the knock-on effect of that over weeks and months. The compound effect, yeah. Yeah, could be one 100. I, I lost a world junior, um, world junior championships by one one hundredth of a second. And that's over a four-run race. So, yeah, that was like a really big learning point for me and, and yeah, realising... Just, I mean, I'm drinking my water bottle now, just being a little bit more hydrated. The effect of your performance by being dehydrated, yeah, is, is big. Just quickly, before we talk about the books, so I want to dig deep in it a little more detail, but from the SWOT analysis point of view, because it is related to today's podcast topic, like how it can benefit athletes, which you have mentioned, but out of that exercise, which is the area which is important for the athletes to focus on? Because I don't know about you, but whenever I think of threats, that could be a longer list than my strengths. And I'm just curious of when you did that exercise, how do you look at it as like, is it put everything on paper in those certain categories? Or did you have a, another method of having more strengths than threats and focusing what needs to be, you know, happen, what you want to achieve in the next four years? I mean, literally, yeah, get a giant piece of paper, divide it into four and start splattering away. And I think naturally as people, we find weaknesses, probably the easiest one to do. We can always say negative things about ourselves. And I think that's really easy and quite a British thing to do is to put really negative things about yourself and the areas that you don't think are good enough. I think it's harder and for me, more unnatural to put strengths and positives. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you need other people to help you do that. Oh, no, you're really good at this. Or your positive is that you're warm and you're sensitive and you listen to people or, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you just have to squirrel away and it's not going to come all at once. And it might take you a week to do an exercise like this. It might take you longer. And whenever something pops into your brain, even if it's just a little on your phone notes, you know, write it down, 
Um, but I think if you start off by doing sort of one of those, you know, splitting your life. So if I'm an athlete, think about your physical performance, your mental performance, think about your lifestyle, think about your nutrition, think about um, maybe your relationships, your family life, your work life, um, other stresses. And then once you sort of have divided and you've got almost those other topics, then you might be able to find it a bit easier to think of a good thing, a bad thing and weaknesses and things about that. I think threats, they can be quite hard, but, you know, let's recent years, COVID illnesses, that's a threat. Facilities being shut down, not being able to fly places, injuries, of course, they're all threats. Um, so they can be useful to write down and think, well, what could I do to get around that? Can I afford to have a massage once a month, once a fortnight? That was something I did. You know, I made sure I saved up enough money that once a week, once a fortnight, I invested to be able to have a massage because we didn't get it enough. You know, there wasn't money for us to have it within the sport, but I need that myself. So Uh, my back is protected. I'm, you know, looking after and putting that investment into me. Um, Opportunities. Yeah, so it's a bit of a tricky one. Yeah. Is it asking for help? Is it talking around? Is it mixing with other sports? Is it learning from other people in other sports? The gym that you're at, can you speak to the next person? You never know. They might be from a power speed sport that can help you in your sport. And I think strengths, that's always quite a hard one to... (laughs) find what you think is good about you but there's always a reason there's always a reason why you might be strong at something even if it is you know what I'm good at organizing things which means I'm never late perfect you know I'm I'm good at prepping my food so I have good nutrition I'm good at helping other people and in return that normally helps me back I don't know yeah so I think just take your time over it get some giant pieces of paper splat it out on your floor and just scribble away with some post-it notes or whatever it might be get some coloring you know colorful pens some sharpie pens love a sharpie and start writing (laughs) absolutely I really hope people are taking notes but really quickly like reflecting of those four years and then win the gold medal like what you were most proud of when you reached that Everest for you to achieve that gold reflecting now yeah um I think not giving up there were definitely moments throughout my career that I could easily and did nearly pack it all in I remember going to my performance director and saying yeah I'm done like this is not cool like there was some really tough moments especially when you've got injuries as well and to keep positive to keep looking forward to keep looking at that very end goal go to the Olympics you know win a medal, whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm kind of proud of not letting other people sort of make you stop um, and to find the inner strength. And yeah. And actually for me, the world championships in 2009, I won a silver medal in Lake Placid. And that was for me a real big achievement. You know, that was a real turning point for me and really was like, okay, I'm a year out from the Olympics. I've just won a silver medal in the same format of, of racing over two days four runs. Okay. And so that for me was a really, I can do this. I was ill at the time. I can still perform when I'm not a hundred percent when I'm ill a year out. Okay. I am nailing this. I've just won a silver medal. And then I won a silver medal on the test event in Vancouver. So I was like, this is good. This track suits me. You know, I, I can do this. And for that, that was a huge, big, 
kind of a affirmation really pivotal moment yeah, yeah. Oh, did, you, hmm. did you adjust your goal do you adjust your goals then like to aim just that touch higher because you said to me beforehand the four years was just get to the next olympics did you adjust the goals straight after that performance i mean yeah the the we had a sport psychologist in that year before the olympics and she was always saying you're always changing your goalposts you're never happy with your performance because you always shift them and it's true you know i think like all of us if you suddenly say okay in this race i want to come top six you know and then you're not happy with it because you're like oh actually i know i could have come fourth or whatever it might be I was creepingly getting better and better and better, uh, especially in my training. I was always putting down fastest runs throughout a training uh, week. You'd have three days of training, uh, two runs a day. So six runs to learn the track before you raced at it. And so I'd always put down generally one of the fastest runs, prove to myself when I get it right, I can beat every one of these girls in this race. I have to do it on race day though. And I never quite did it on race day for whatever reason, or the other girls suddenly up to their game and I just stayed the same. Um, so that was always a really frustrating thing for me. I just sort of stayed consistent and everyone else seemed to suddenly like find this extra 10th of a second on race day. And I just didn't, but you know, I just kind of stayed there. And when it mattered and when it did matter in the big championships, I performed well, the big championships, I always did my, my best. And yeah, winning that silver medal the year out was definitely uh, a confirmation and a pat on the back of you can win a medal. You can do this. And so that that year build up to Vancouver and the races before the Olympics, it was about really trying to do the same thing, be consistent. My kind of middle name was consistency. Um, my coach dubbed me training champion because I always broke track records and always beat everyone in training. So I think it just proved to me I can do it. When it all comes together, I can do it. And I have to take confidence from that. And I wasn't always the most confident athlete. And that's probably what let me down is it was that confident. Sorry to put you on the spot. And sorry to put you on the spot. You said you weren't confident. May I ask why? Or how did you get yourself in a confident state? I think I've got a clue because you said you performed when the pressure was on with me in those big events. But you sound so confident. And I'm just curious of how you weren't confident. Yeah, I just never was. I mean, I was always quite quiet, quite shy. So in that sense, you know, I was sort of the quiet one and they were on the team, much louder people. And so, you know, I kind of always just, I guess, hid away a little bit. I think the fact that it became sort of a bit of an annoying thing that I always performed in training, but not in race day. You know, I kind of almost was like, oh, am I going to do it? Am I not? Like, and you almost told yourself, well, you know, I don't know, kind of like the negative side crept in of, well, I never do it, do I? Like, where does everyone else and the annoyance of that focusing on the other people? Why are they always faster than me on race day? What am I doing that I'm not suddenly being able to up my game and yet I can beat them all in training? And, you know, is it because I stood on that race day and on that start line and, and I so desperately wanted to win? I knew I could win. I knew I could beat everyone. And I so desperately wanted it. So then was my body that little bit more tension in it? Did I fight a bit with my sled? I skidded a little bit more and all these other factors that can come into a race day. And yeah, that's a massive big learning, you know, learning curve. And with every race, it was trying to get over that and become more confident and say, well, actually, you are really good. You're the one of the world's best starters. I was always in top three in my sprint. You're good. You're strong. Everyone else is looking at you, you know you can win medals and you have 
And so it was just that slowly gradual. Was it a mindset shift? Yeah. And for me, it really was. I, I, I went above and beyond behind the scenes. Like I said, that, that training, going to bed early, eating well, doing everything physically better. And I really then started to believe I'm doing this better than any other athlete out there. And I think that became a sort of like little hidden thing that I thought, yeah, I've done and worked harder than any other person. Um, And then when it did come to the race day, it was, okay, if I'm meant to win, I will win this race. Um, If I have genuinely worked harder and I've learned this track better than any other athlete, I will win this race. Uh, And that became, uh, okay, I'm prepared. I am ready. I've done everything physically imaginable to do the very best and to get myself a medal. And I put down some of the fastest runs in training, like I always did. You know, it was like, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, now I have to do it on the big day. And I know racing over two days, four runs, consistency, that is what I'm good at. And that will win me a medal. Yeah, no, I'm loving this. I mean, all of the conversation. I just want to tap into now the consistency bit because. I'm just curious of how you stay consistent because I've been running this podcast show for seven years and I just love jamming on the mic and I'll make it happen. Like every Tuesday, I haven't missed one last, yeah, seven years. So I'm just curious of like how you had some non-negotiables to stay consistent. I don't always mean with your training. I just mean how you approach things to stay consistent, to compete to your best, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's hard when you're out there on the road and you might not have ideal con- conditions the restaurant might not do food that you want or whatever it is and those sort of things so you have to prep and plan and I carried my pillow around everywhere I went because I'm a terrible sleeper so if I can bring my own pillow that's one consistent thing in my bedroom when I'm trying to sleep on a different bed most weeks I bring a travel kettle with me because I can have a nice cup of tea because I'm British and I need my cup of tea I bring around a pot of honey because I love honey and if I feel really sick and I don't feel I've got too many nerves to eat a slice of toast with honey, win-win. So little things like that. So you create your own comforts that make you happy. And it was a very long process of using a psychologist that made me realize I only compete well when I'm happy. And that was a really, it sounds the most simplest thing, but I realized I never really enjoyed race day because I told myself I had to win because I told myself I'd been winning and training And it became this thing that then I actually never really enjoyed racing. So that sounds very easy to say. And it took me years and years to realize that. So I had to create my happy place, create that environment that I could be happy. Uh, And that became a a consistent thing as well of, right, this has to become a normal thing. And yeah, do the same routine. I prepped my sled, my equipment the same way in training as I did on race day. I did everything exactly the same. And I practiced my warm-ups. I practiced my routines. I practiced everything. So it was just normal. Race day was a normal continuation of how I used to train. Um, yeah, and, and all those little tiny things mounting up. And then that leads to the habits of doing those habits. And then it just came second nature. So I'm just painting the picture for the listeners. Is, is that correct? Yeah, totally. Um uh, and then, yeah, everything just becomes a normal thing. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal. And you wake up on race day and of course you've got extra nerves. You know, you try to tell yourself you don't, but of course you do. And it matters more, but you're trying to say it doesn't. But at least you're doing everything exactly the same. 
Right. We better explain to the listeners like what your book's called. We've have talked about it throughout this whole conversation, but just for listeners, could you just name the title of your book, the, the vision behind it a little bit? You touched on it already, but honestly, everybody got to grab a copy, particularly if you're a young athlete, but I'm going to give you the mic, Amy, with regards to your book. Yeah, no, it's called Talent to Triumph, How Athletes Turn Potential into High Performance. So, I mean, I wanted to write a book after I had won back in 2010 and just never quite did it. I knew I I didn't want to do an autobiography. I wanted it to be a book that was lessons. Uh, so, yeah, it is aimed at teenage athletes, I'd say from like 12 up. Um, even if you're in twenties, I've had businessmen buy it saying, "Wow, this is perfect. Like it's helped me improve my golf or actually I use this within the workplace. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. It's a, it's a tool book. It's, it's lessons. It's got my story linking through. So yeah, chapter one is about selecting your sport. It's got chapters on, on goal setting, teamwork, mindset, um, training, preparation, managing setbacks, injuries, fear. I mean, yeah, 10 chapters, success. Uh, and I have interviewed over 30 top athletes, winter and summer games from world champions, Olympic medalists, special forces, Jason Fox, SAS, you know, Rebecca Adlington, swimmer to, you know, huge variety of sports and their top tips and lessons kind of weave into mine and my story throughout the book. There are practical tools. There's a lot of PDFs, um, pages that I want you to scribble in, write in it, you know, examples of how you can do that pie chart or um, how you can, well, books flicked over here on logical, emotional thinking. How can you pop that negative thoughts into positives uh, on a race day? You know, me already saying about that negative self-talk. Okay, how can I turn that sentence into a positive one? So there's practical tips and guides and guides and tools and I mean, all the pictures, pages, they're all from my own psychology book. Um, so I used to write a diary psychology book, having worked with the psychologist and my own things. And I have drawn them out. I've put them into practical things that you can um, work on. So it's it's there. Put it in your training bag. And when you've got an hour or two in between heats at an athletics track, you know, read it and scribble in it and write down what you're thinking and feeling and yeah, read what other people have done when they have fear. So I've just been across on the Isle of Man. I, I commentate and present on the TT. So motorbikes racing around the Isle of Man, around the roads. So Maria Costello, she's one of the, the top female sidecar drivers, riders. Yeah, stuff on how she deals with fear fear when you're about to go you know 150 160 70 miles per hour there's dame sarah story you know multiple paralympian cyclists how does she deal with stuff and coaching and how to get the best out of your coach so there's a huge variety of of athletes um giving all of their advice to you so yeah I'm super excited about it I I did write it in lockdown should we call it a lockdown book um but it's been brewing in me for a good 10 years. And I finally, I wrote it all myself. You know, I didn't want to get a ghostwriter. I wanted it to be my words, my work physically from my psychology book. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wish I had it before, you know, I wish I had it 10 plus years ago. Um, you know, well, actually 15, 20 years ago, um, in my career, because I feel like, yeah, I've, I've put down all my reasons and, and secrets, um, and how I became, yeah, a champion. 
Well, as they say, Tony Robbins, success leaves clues. And there's so many clues in the book. And I'm just curious now, how have you used your own book with regards to your business in the fitness industry? Because it, as you say, it's so transferable, your book, To Other Walks of Life. I'm just curious of you now being a business owner. Mm. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think like anything. Yeah, so I opened up my personal training business. I, well, yeah, lockdown, when did that happen? March 2020. Yeah, so I opened up my gym to myself on the 10th birthday of my medal. So February 2020, I won mine in February 2010. So 10 years after that, I was like, right, I want my own gym. I want to be fit and I, you know, treat to myself. We have a double garage at home, which luckily on our driveway, converted, fab. And then I guess like everyone else, lockdown happened and suddenly the diary went empty and I wasn't earning any money. And I had done all my personal training qualifications and I thought, right, this is it. I want to help other people. I, I want to be able to train other people. My average clients are actually 40s, 50s, wanting to be fit and healthy for the next stages of their life. They're not interested in suddenly lifting PBs or becoming a GB sprinter although I'm not saying I wouldn't train them. Um, but that's sort of, you know, my sort of average, as it happens, clientele. And I really enjoy it. And I suddenly, when I'm teaching and coaching, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going back on some of the stuff I used to do. And suddenly realizing that negative self-talk you might have about yourself as you're going to work. And am I doing the best for my clients? Am I the best PT that I could be? Oh, Amy, why are you saying this stuff? And, you know, is it true or is it not true? And I think like anything, you um, you go through it. And, yep, I prep myself the day before. I have to prep my children, get the bags ready for school and nursery. I've got a three and a five-year-old boy. So I'm time management is very crucial in my life. So that's a kind of old athlete thing. Prep the bag the night before. Everyone's got their water bottles filled. Everyone's got everything ready because I have to get them out the door at a certain time. To be able to get my first clients into the gym and be back on time, bish bash bosh, and fit in all these other work and podcasts and other jobs and TV stuff and presenting in and around the life, and then pick up the boys again and be a mum again. Any working mum, you know, you're juggling all of that. And so I think a lot of that does come down to a lot of skills that you learn as an athlete having confidence in yourself that you're doing a good job, knowing there's going to be highs and lows uh and yeah kind of figuring it out as you go along um and I always joke like oh, yeah I should probably go back through that chapter of my own book no but I just thought you brought the manual yourself and you've written I thought sometimes I know some of us who's like oh I forgot about that chapter in my book I said well I've learned that from you and I hope it's a reminder to you when you do have those down days or tough days you can go back to your own book because honestly I so much enjoyed the read listeners you've got to grab a copy but out of interest Amy like reflecting now what have you enjoyed the most from your like career journey looking back now that's a tough one um I mean it's massive I kind of feel like I've got different chapters I've got the athlete me and there was certainly you know really tough times but you know physically lying on my sled and sliding you know I, I loved and I really loved being in the gym and lifting and feeling fast and strong um that's the old me now. And, and, you know, when you win a, a medal, doors are opened and you get given huge opportunities. So even though I might not have been brave enough or wasn't confident enough, you know, I always told myself, go on, give it a go. Like 
what could go wrong? Like even with first presenting gigs and working with BBC on many Olympics and then most recently with Eurosport on the Winter Olympics. So that's a huge learning curve and not really having confidence to begin with or before any job, I get anxious and am I good enough? And what happens if I haven't researched enough? And yeah, self-doubt, all of those negative thoughts and no, Amy, you've done the best you can with the time allowance. You're a busy person. You can't research everything and you know you're good at it and you know you're a natural and you know that you can talk and people warm to you. Remember your strengths. So, yeah, you're always kind of going back through that. Um, and, yeah, they've been amazing opportunities and, and making new friends through other sports. And then now being in an area that I can help other people and, bring fitness and wellness and health to other people's lives through my PT business. And then obviously, yeah, from writing the book, knowing that um, you want to help the next generation of young athletes. And, and that's really important to me to spread the love of sport and my passion uh, for that is, is really important. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, but I am curious though. Are you grateful now back in 2006, you had that, broadcasting gig now you're working with Eurosport <laughs> yeah I think uh, every experience definitely teaches you I have not been in quite such a small commentating booth before um, although actually at Sochi Olympics um, working that was a very small little commentating booth yeah so um, yeah I mean all of it is just great experiences and um, you learn from other people around you and learn from from better people and Hope it rubs off on you a little bit. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to finish with an inspirational question, and I want to talk about your superpower with regards to self-awareness. What three tips would you give to the listeners to improve their self-awareness with regards to their daily performance? What would those three tips be, please? Oh, my word. Um, mm, I mean, yeah, self-awareness. I think for me, it's being aware if you need help. I think in this day and age, being aware that mental side of life, being in a good place, ask for help. Don't feel like that's a weakness to ask um, advice, advice and help. I think listen to your gut feeling. That self-awareness for me was my gut is telling me this isn't quite right or this isn't the perfect decision or this job opportunity that's come through. Yes, it's a... I know, big TV gig with millions of people watching, great money, but my gut says that isn't you. Don't do it. Um, so, yeah, something's definitely that gut feeling in your tummy, that right and wrong. And oh, give everything a go in that, although I'm not, I don't want to contradict what I've just said then about that gut feeling, but, you know, if you feel, yeah, why not? Give it a go. You don't know what you're missing out on or that me transitioning from athletics into skeleton. If I didn't have that... What have I got to lose? Let's give it a go kind of attitude. Then, you're, then you'll never know what you could be missing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And what a great tip to finish on. Out of interest, like where is the best place to connect with you online? Yeah, um, probably Instagram, to be honest. I'm really terrible on Twitter, although, um, yeah, I try and spread across. But no, I'm always uh, constantly on Instagram. And then, yeah, I mean, if anyone is interested in buying my book, um, message me on Instagram or just go onto my website, amywilliams.com amywilliamspt.com amywilliamspt.com has links and you can there's a page there you can buy my book and I'll personally sign it I'll write some messages that's some really cute like you know 
football dads saying, oh, my son, this and this, could you please, you know, he's got a tournament, please write a good message to him. And yeah, I literally, I'll personally sign them, post them up from my own um, production in my house. Um, yeah. So no, just go on there. Otherwise, yeah. Instagram, message me. Awesome. To all the listeners listening, the websites, all those links will be on my blog post with the this podcast chat. Amy, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What an awesome conversation with Amy. Honestly, it was such a privilege to have the opportunity to have her on the podcast show. My goodness, where should I start? With regards to today's podcast topic, I hope now you've got a better understanding the benefits of doing a SWOT analysis, not just for business, not just for sport, but actually it's a great self-awareness exercise with regards to where you are now and where you want to go. Like Amy gave a perfect example. She did it straight after the 2006, after she did that commentary uh, gig with the BBC. And she put that exercise into place where she then created a four-year plan with regards to Vancouver at uh, Winter Olympics. It just shows by having all your thoughts, ideas, goals, aspirations with regards to having that clarity and focus, that was a big game changer, which I hope you will apply into your sports career development straight after this. But for me, the biggest takeaway, which I think to a point, which was the sort of key moment was... um, Amy not comparing herself with her competition. She said that was the main factor with regards to 2006 not being selected. She was more focused on other people, her competition. And she even gave examples, even like now in the fitness industry too, which she works in. So with regards to 2006, 2010, there were two main things that made her successful. One, eliminating competition, which is tough. Even in my world of podcasting, There's competitors in everything we do, in all walks of life. It's part of life. And number two is that consistency word. Without a doubt, with us, the 2009 competition, which then elevated her confidence, elevated her goals, that instead of just competing for Vancouver, you know, she was going with a mindset of, I'm going to compete to win. And for me, that was my biggest takeaway, that little example of, Things can change when you have everything aligned, the confidence, the focus, the goals, the path, the clarity, knowing your strengths, all these little metrics with regards to performance was indicated in this conversation. That's what I've really enjoyed the most of this conversation that relating to her book, which is a must read, there will be a link in the show notes where you can get your copy because it's so applicable. Even I read chapters like the pie chart example I go back and redo that exercise which is really simple you get a draw a circle and you literally like a pie like a cake slice out the elements which are prioritizing to your lifestyle is it family finances relationships um goals um it could be your health goals all this is in that one pie chart so every day you show up and there's that alignment and that's the key thing too is with regards to Amy's performance, now as a as a mum, as a fitness instructor, or being a broadcaster, it's having that alignment that relates to your day and time management. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat as much as I have experienced, and I learned a lot too, and I'll have to re-listen to it, and I think you should too, because when you re-listen to it, you will learn something new every time with regards to your career development. 
But most of all, I would love you, yes, I mean you, if you're listening to this, to share your biggest takeaway. Let me know on LinkedIn or on Twitter at edbowers101 because I'd love to hear your thoughts of what one thing you're going to put into your career development now, straight after listening to this podcast. But in the meantime, put that one thing into practice now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Amy said, remember your strengths, ask for help, don't think it's a weakness, and give everything a go on areas that interest you.